Okay. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody here. Good morning, everybody there. We are trying to record this sermon. We've had some technical difficulties today. Ironically, one year since we've been uh, doing this live stream, and I think that uh, it would be right for us to, to take this opportunity to uh, thank God uh, for how um, how blessed we've been this past year to have uh, the, the technology to be able to live stream our services um, and uh, blessed by the people that have made it happen over the past year. So um, and we will figure out whatever it is that's going on uh, with uh, the, 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 the situation. We'll figure that out. So uh, hopefully this is recording well and I'll post this to YouTube later on this afternoon. But if you're watching it, you already know that. So why did I say that? Anyway, turn with me to the book of um, Genesis chapter 9. Um, so uh, last week, like Mary said, we, uh, we left Noah and his family in the middle of the open sea as the, the chaos of the flood waters raged. Um, and we won't leave them there for long. Uh, this is a pretty familiar story. Uh, you probably read it in Sunday school, so you're probably already, you already know how it ends. Um, at the uh, beginning of Genesis 8, we're told that God remembered Noah, right? Um, and as you might recall from last year's Lent series uh, on Exodus, when the Bible talks about God remembering something, it's not referencing the possibility that he might otherwise have forgotten. It's not, you know, uh, it's not like God was looking over the flood waters and then, you know, he had his cup of coffee in his hand and then all of a sudden, like, he realized, oh my gosh, you know, there's that guy Noah that's still out there with on that ark with all those smelly animals. You know, <laughs> I forgot about that guy. I bet he's really mad. Um, no, when, when the Bible talks about God remembering something, it's about, it's talking about his promise keeping. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. Last week, we, we saw that, that before God shut Noah and his family into the ark, God established a holy promise uh, with, with, with Noah. What's, what's, the, what's the Bible word for a holy promise? Covenant. There you go. Everybody got it in the room. There you go. Um, a, a covenant. God established a covenant, a holy promise with Noah. Um, after months at sea, the rain stopped and the waters began to recede. And, and you know the story. As, as, uh, as this happens, Noah eventually opens the window, uh, sends out some birds to see if they would come back as, you know, that's a sign of dry land. Uh, eventually, one comes back with an olive leaf. And Noah takes that as a sign that it was, you know, almost safe to leave the ark. But, but he, you know, he doesn't want to overdo it. So he, he gives it another week and he tried again with the dove, and this time the dove didn't come back, and he took that as a good sign that, 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 that therefore, you know, the, the, uh, the bird had evidently found some place to live, and then now it was safe to leave the ark. It's been said that God only gives us what he knows we can handle. And that might sound good on Facebook, but it's just not true. Uh, history is replete with tragically awful stories of individuals families, communities who were given a lot more than they could handle. The story of Noah and the ark is, tragic, is a tragically awful story. And although Noah was identified as a blameless man in his generation, it, it wasn't by Noah's own power that he was delivered from the flood. 
No, it's probably closer to say that uh, God doesn't give us more than he can handle. But even that could be misleading if we assume that we get to define what handling it looks like. God had remembered Noah. He remembered his covenant with Noah and the family leaves the ark. And the first thing that we're told Noah does when he leaves the ark is that he builds an altar to the Lord. He worships God, this God who had just delivered him and his family from the chaos. I don't doubt that, that the flood tested every bit of Noah's faith and certainly every bit of his patience. I love that we did the, the oceans tune um, earlier, but when he got off the boat, the first thing that Noah does is worship the God who saw him through the storm. I mean, uh, there's a story in, uh, in John 9 uh, of Jesus uh, healing a man who was born blind from birth. Um, and it causes all kinds of like community problems. It causes all kinds of, 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 of you know, neighborly gossip. And like, how did he do that? It's the, the guy that did that. He probably did that because he was evil. And, and who is this that did this? And, and they, and they kind of all gather around this guy, the Pharisees and his neighbors. And, um, you know, they bring his family into it. And all, all, there's all, this, all these people trying to figure out how this guy can see. And the guy's just standing there like, all I know is I was blind and now I can see, you know? And later on, Jesus, he finds him, and, and, and Jesus has this kind of down-to-earth conversation with him. He says, yeah, you know that you, you were blind, and now you see. Do, do you believe now? Do you see more than just what your eyes can see? Do you actually see with your heart? And, and the man confesses, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him, you know? He, he was seen through that time of trial, and he responded with worship. And I imagine with Noah, as the flood waters raged, you know, Noah might have said, and then he gets off the boat and he worships God and he's saying, all I know is that for the past few weeks, it's been torrential downpour and the flood waters have raged and all this chaos has been around. All I know is that last month it was absolute chaos and I don't know how I survived. And now I'm on dry land worshiping God. So yeah, he'll set up an altar to the God who brought him through it. I got my vaccine this week. You know, I'm grateful that, that we live in a state that, that allowed clergy and, and folks who, um, who are involved in, in worship services to, 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 to be vaccinated. Uh, so we're able to, to be here uh, serving, you know, the public. And um, anyway, it's just, I, I had that thought as I was reading this text, all I know is that for the past year, I've been in a worldwide pandemic, and last Tuesday, I got stuck in my arm with a vaccine. There's no way to respond to that other than worship. There's no way to respond to that other than worship. So what does worship look like for us? What, is it, what does it look like? It, it means that we have a job to do. God has chosen individuals on that, that chose the individuals that were on that ark as an embodiment of hope. Uh, the Genesis scholar Walter Brueggemann says that Noah embodies a newness in human history. Noah is spoken of in high regard in the rest of the Bible, but it's important here that we see him worship God. 
It wasn't Noah's ingenuity that saved him. It, it was that he walked with the one who had power over the flood. The reason why worship is so important is because it shows us that Noah knew that he wasn't the hero of this story. There is a fundamental truth to all of human existence that we are better off when we are a part of something greater than ourselves, when we know that we're a part of something greater than ourselves. The reason why we make it a habit to worship at least once a week is because it reminds us that we aren't God, and more importantly, that he is. That's the story. This story from Genesis to Revelation, that's the story. It's all his story. I lied when I said turn to Genesis 9. Turn to, to Psalm 25, actually, or 29. Psalm 29. We'll get to Genesis 9 in a minute. Genesis 29, starting in verse 10. I'm sorry, Psalm, Psalms 29, starting in verse 10. I said Psalm 29, verse 10. Sorry, my fault. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. As I mentioned last week, the Noah story isn't an easy story to read. I think that if, if we read the part of the story about God blotting out the vast majority of living creatures on the earth, the vast majorities of creatures that he just created a few chapters ago, and our hearts don't grieve, if our hearts grieve, I think we're in the right frame of mind. As we saw last week, it, it, it grieved God's heart to see the extent to which sin had spread throughout his creation. Specifically, it was the problem of violence that God was responding to. Violence was given as the primary expression of the wickedness of humanity and therefore the primary reason for the judgment of the flood. If our response to the awfulness of this story is to gasp at the tragic loss of life, then we've hit the heart of why the flood occurred in the first place. The lesson this story teaches humanity over the centuries is that God alone is worthy to deal out death and judgment, for he alone is enthroned over the flood. That should make us tremble. He alone is our one true king. Or you could put it this way. If God is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So the lesson of the flood is to first look to him as sovereign over life, its life and, and death and, and stop violence, stop the violence. There's a, there's a song that um, our, our house church, I was actually reminded in our, in our house church or this, uh, earlier this week, uh, we're reading this uh, book, Broken Signposts, um, which is a brilliant book by N.T. Wright, definitely recommend it. Um, and one of the chapters is on beauty. And the whole book, point of the book is that, that beauty, is, as an example, is a signpost. That, that beauty is something that reminds us of God here today. It's a signpost that points us towards God's glory. Um, but also, our, um, because of sin, because 
uh, of our own frailty, uh, beauty itself is, is it's, it's, it's a broken signpost. There's something about it that's not quite right. And I see that, and, and um, the, uh, Cindy Wagner led the, the discussion last week, um, and, and she sent out an email earlier in the, earlier in the week that said, what, what's an example of something that reminds you of beauty? And uh, I thought of this song um, by a band called Dire Straits, which I was really into when I was a kid. Um, and there's this one song that they do called Brothers in Arms, which is a song that was written during the, 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 the Falkland Wars. Um, but it's about a soldier dying on the battlefield um, and his dying words, not only to his, his fellow soldiers, but also to, um, well, he, 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 his dying words in the, in the song, he says, there's so many different worlds, so many different sons, but we have just one world, but we live in different ones. Now the sun's gone to hell and the moon's riding high. Let me bid you farewell. Every man has to die. But it's written in the starlight in every line in your poem. We are fools to make war on our brothers and the song is a realization that this soldier's realizing with his dying breath that, that, that his brothers weren't just his fellow soldiers on his side, that they were the people on the other side that they had been fighting. We're fools to make war on our brothers and sisters. Cain was a fool to murder Abel, not just because it didn't just hurt Abel, it hurt Cain because he was his brother. They were supposed to be in this together. And it's not just wrong, it's as if that's bad enough. It's foolish because those people on the other side of our violence could have been our family. They are our family. As Paul says in Galatians, for you were called brothers and sisters, uh, uh, yeah, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one law, one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That's the lesson that, that, that Cain learned and Hopefully that's the lesson that Noah learned. Noah comes off the ark and he worships God. And then God takes over the story, right? Um, and, and shows what it looks like for humanity to move the story forward. So now let's go to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, we'll start at the beginning. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird in the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food to you. Go ahead and hunt. And I gave you the green plant. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But, but you shall not eat the uh, flesh with its life that is, in its, that is in its blood. Take seriously, basically, take seriously this, this, this destruction of life. And then God ups the ante even more. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
for God made man in his own image. The purpose here is um, an emphasis on the sanctity of human life. And then it's sealed there. And you, in verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You see that phrase, be fruitful and multiply. It's repeated several times. It, it bookends this passage. And the second time, it's, it's basically repeated twice with different language. There is one reason why Noah and his family was spared. And that was to continue God's unfolding story of life. If God had wanted to wipe the earth completely clean, he could have, but instead he showed us an image of what redemption in a person looks like. Noah and his family are to get to work repopulating the earth through procreation, yeah. But, but if you would allow me just a little license to take that further, I think it's safe to say that Noah is giving the, given the instruction to continue spreading God's call to live a life that bears fruit and multiplies his message of life for the world in which we live. God tells Noah that he, he won't flood the earth like that again. And he gives him a sign of hope in the, in the rainbow to remind Noah and his descendants that God is a God of life. To worship him is to be fruitful and multiply. To worship God is to be on the side of life. But as I'm sure you know from the Bible and from personal experience, Noah's descendants, us, didn't really live that out and didn't live into God's uh, mission of life as they multiplied. And the, the problem of sin just multiplied with them. And next week, we're going to learn more about that when we, we look at the story of the Tower of Babel. But I can give you a, the short, short version of the story. Noah gets off the ark. Sin continues to spread. So God starts a rescue mission to save the world called Israel. The people of Israel were called to continue God's mission of life in order that somehow, we don't, they didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but somehow through them, God's mission might be fulfilled. God's God's call to be fruitful and multiply might actually be fulfilled in Israel. He even promises that through them, somehow God is going to bless the entire world and bring all of this chaotic cosmos back to intimacy with its creator. And then, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes on the scene and he tells his followers that the reason why he came was in order that they might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the max. Jesus was all about life. That's why the resurrection matters so much. Jesus is the Messiah, the one true King, God incarnate, born of Israel, who is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises that God had made to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David. In Noah, we saw this, this man and his family shut into an ark and kept safe from the, the world's chaos in order that they might embody the newness of life for the world. In Jesus, we see God himself come down into that chaos and show us a better way to live. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. 
What's Matthew chapter 5? Servant on the Mount. Excellent. Very good. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This, this is Jesus going all in on the mission of life. He came that we might have uh, live life to the max. So, you know, he's turning it up to 11. He reserves the right to, of judgment because, frankly, he alone is worthy. Uh, the word uh, hell there is the word Gehenna, which was a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, where they burned dead animals and garbage. So what Jesus is doing here is using the strongest possible language to convey that he intends to continue God's mission of life. In fact, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And if you ignore that, and then you continue to devour each other, there will be consequences. It, it grieves God to his core to see his people hurt one another, to see his people hate one another, to see his people fling hateful language to one another, whether it be in person or on social media or wherever it is, it hurts God to see his people hurt one another. What's in view here isn't righteous anger, like being angry about injustice or calling attention to like foolish ways. You know, the Bible does that repeatedly. No, what's in view here is, is the destructive ways that our words can tear down the bonds that are supposed to connect us. Jesus is going all in because he's calling us to a better way, the, the new way to be human, the, the, the better way that he modeled himself by dying on the cross for our sins. Like, like I said, if we continue to bite and devour each other, there will be consequences. In Jesus, though, God put those consequences on himself. And he paid the price for the sins of humanity. Jesus was, this is an important word, Jesus was so obedient to the mission of life, to that call to be fruitful and multiply. He was so obedient to that mission of life that he went to the cross. He broke down the wall of division that separated us from God, and he showed us what it looked like to live a life worth living. Not a life of violence, not a life of anger, not a life of hate, but one of not just love, sacrificial love. Love that, that costs us something. Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew or, or Greek. We're all in the same boat. For the same Lord is Lord of all. We're all brothers. We're all sisters, brothers and sisters. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him for, for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
All I know is that I was blind and now I see. All I know is that the storm was raging, but now I'm alive. He saved us not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy, because of his love, because of his ongoing commitment to the mission of life. So the real question is, what do we do with that? Noah got off the boat and worshiped God. So what do we do with our salvation? We go back to that call to be fruitful and multiply. If Jesus was going all in against violence and hate and destruction, what do you think's on the other end of the end zone? The other end zone. You know, we, we don't follow Jesus by just not hating other people. We follow Jesus through love and acceptance and forgiveness. We are called, as, as one writer put it, we're called to cry the gospel with our lives. Charles de Foucault, who was a cavalry officer in the French army before becoming a priest, he put it this way. He said, my apostolate or my purpose, my mission must be one of goodness. If someone asks me why I'm, why I'm gentle and good, I must reply, because I serve one who is much better than I am. If, if only you knew how good my master Jesus is. I, I want to be, Charles said, I want to be so good that people will say, if, if that's the servant, how then is the master? That the way we live out our call to be fruitful and multiply is to participate in God's mission of life and spread the very message of life itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The news that in Christ we are offered hope and salvation and abundant eternal life. This can't just be the responsibility of guys like me, preachers. My responsibility is to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of the ministry. My responsibility as a pastor is to continue, is to challenge all of us to do the work of spreading the gospel. We, we may not all be evangelists in the, in the Ephesians 4 sense of the word. Evidently, as, as Paul talks about that, there are some who are, are called especially uh, to be devoted to proclaiming the gospel. But um, that's why we have staff. That's why we have lay pastors. That's why we have church leaders. But, but we all are called to the larger work of the Evangelion, the larger work of the gospel. Uh, the writer Doug Field says that evangelism, spreading the gospel, it, it, it's not a program. It's not something that we do. It's not, it's, it's, it's not lights and, and cameras and, and, and clever presentations. Evangelism isn't a program, it's a, it's a process. A process of a person, any person, modeling his or her transformed life to someone in need of God's transformative grace. Let me say that again. Evangelism isn't a program, it's a process, a process of a person, any person, modeling his or her transformed life to someone in need of God's transformative grace. That is what it means to be fruitful and multiply. So what's the application? What's one small step that you could make this week to continue the work of uh, the gospel in your life or to, to, to continue this mission of life? Am I asking you to share the gospel, gospel with others? Not necessarily, although if, if you have no idea where you'd even begin, that might be a sign that you could probably use a better understanding of what the gospel is. And if that's you, pay attention over the coming weeks. 
But if you're looking for like just one small thing that you could do, which is not really a, not really a small thing at all, I would challenge you, as, as Paul put it earlier, I would challenge you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In short, tell someone you're a Christian. Tell them that you're a part of a church community that you love. Tell them that you're a part of this family. I'm not saying you should be preachy. I'm saying that you should be honest. If you call upon the name of Jesus as Lord and you believe that salvation is found in him alone and that abundant life is found in him alone, eternal life is found in him alone, then, then yeah, we have a responsibility to share that news because it's the best news. We have a responsibility to share that with others. Not out of preachiness, not out of judgment, out of love. Paul told us that we shouldn't use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. That's odd. What does he mean by that? I think it, at least part of what he means is that we shouldn't keep Jesus all to ourselves. You weren't saved so that you could go to heaven when you die. You were blessed with abundant life, the abundant life of salvation in order that you might be fruitful and multiply that message to others who desperately need to hear the love of Christ. And that'll look like different things to lots of different people. It'll look like different things to each person listening to me. But, but maybe it's pastoring. Maybe it's, you know, formal church leadership. It could be that. But most likely, most likely it's, it's just confessing that Jesus is Lord um, wherever you find yourself in, a, in, a per, in, a, in your particular circumstance. Tell a friend that you're a Christian. Invite them to church, maybe on Easter. But do, do you know when the best Sunday is to invite, to invite somebody to church? This Sunday, this Sunday is the best Sunday to invite somebody to church. And that's a reminder, right? That's a reminder to those of us who are up front that on any given Sunday, even a Sunday when the tech falls apart, any given Sunday, somebody could walk through the doors or tune in online that hasn't heard the gospel. We have a responsibility to, to cultivate a culture of evangelism in our church. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that cultivates an invitational culture. I want to be a part of a church that's hospitable to outsiders. I want to be a, a joinable church because I believe that those people who haven't heard the good news of Christ, those people who aren't, you know, technically a part of, of, of new hope, they, they, are, they are our brothers and sisters. They're worth fighting for. They're worth maybe an uncomfortable conversation. They're worth it. We have a responsibility to spread the gospel. We have a responsibility to become the gospel for the community. That's our call in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your life. For this life that you have given us and the life that you lived um, in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, but died a sinner's death in order that you might be resurrected, in, the, in order that we might taste and participate in your resurrection for the sake of this world. Father, help us to um, to see your love as it really is in our context, as we, as we live it out in our lives. This isn't some abstract principle. 
Lord, we're going to talk to people. We're going to, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and we're going to go about our day on our normal Monday. It's that. It's, that's the area where we're going to proclaim the gospel. And yeah, first of all, we need to do it in, in, in our activity, in our, in our love, in doing our job well. or being a good student. That's, that's the first way we go. But when, when we're asked, hey, why do you care so much? Why do you love me so much? It's because Jesus first loved me. Father, thank you so much for um, the work that you're doing in and through us. I just pray that you would continue to, to unite us as a family uh, for the sake of the larger family of this world. In Christ's name, amen. So are you ready to go out into the world? Stand.